So go ahead and take out your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 6. We're going to be in Joshua 6, and we're going to be starting, sitting um, in on uh, the military conquests section of Joshua 6. So these next seven chapters of Joshua are going to be devoted to the the military conquest aspect of the the book of Joshua. And uh, perhaps, like many, you think of Joshua as... uh, Think of the whole book of Joshua as a series of military battles, but really it's limited just to these next seven chapters that focus on this specific aspect of how God has allowed his people to go in and to take the land for a a specific purpose, that God has a driven objective in these military conquests that we're going to be learning about for the next several weeks as we look at these next seven chapters of Joshua. And to highlight that a little bit, I want to start off with a a quote this morning from David Howard Jr. And he says in this quote that the military style encounters are a means to two ends. One, to God's giving Israel its inheritance of the land that had long been promised to it. And secondly, his punishing of local inhabitants of the land for their wickedness. Hopefully we will see God's holiness and we will be able to see these two objectives of God that he is going in and and sending his people into not only Jericho, but uh, in subsequent cities for these two purposes to uh, be faithful to his promise to Israel and also to punish the local inhabitants that are currently inhabiting that land that he had promised to Abraham so many years before. All right, so again, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 6, and this is a a chapter that most of us are probably quite familiar with. Um, This is probably the most popular chapter in Joshua, and I would venture to guess that when most people think of the book of Joshua, this is the, the section that comes to their mind. They think of Joshua and the battle of Jericho. So we're going to go ahead and dive in. We're going to be looking at three different sections of this chapter. We're going to first look at the instructions for the taking of Jericho. And secondly, we're going to look at the the quote-unquote battle of Jericho itself. And thirdly, we'll look at the the following up after the battle and uh, the results of the, the battle after results of the battle. And again, as we look at these three different sections, we're going to see that God is intimately involved in every single aspect of what is going on in this chapter. God is not a a deistic God who is far off and removed. He's not a God who just wound up the clock and started creation, then left us to our own devices, and he's off somewhere else. He is a God who is intimately involved in every aspect, not only of this chapter, but also of our lives. Not only is he intimately involved, but he is the one who is running the show. And so keep that in mind as we dig into these verses. Let's go ahead and start by reading the first two verses of Joshua chapter 6. Verse 1 says, Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. And so here, right off the bat, we can see that God is involved in what's going on in in Jericho. He has already uh, done the the groundwork, so to speak, the preparation of the taking of Jericho himself. Uh, Perhaps you'll remember, let's go back and look at 
chapter 2 of Joshua. And in chapter 2, verse 9, we see what was in the hearts of those who were in Jericho. We get a, a little glimpse, a little peek into what was in their hearts, what was in their minds through the, the eyes of Rahab. And Rahab says in verse 9, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Ammonites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So, again, God has already done the, the preparation work in the hearts of those who are within Jericho. He's the one who brought the Israelites through the, the Red Sea. He's the one who brought the Israelites through the Jordan. He's the one who enabled them to defeat uh, the, the kings, Og and, and Sihon. He's the one who allowed those things. He's the one who put that fear within the hearts of those who were in Jericho. And let's go back even a little bit farther in Joshua 2, 3. It says that the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all of the land. So this understanding of what God was doing through his people Israel made way even to the, the ears of the king. And the king was worried. The king was concerned. And he sent out word saying, There's People who are trying to get in here, and, and I'm worried about it. I'm concerned about it, so bring them to me. God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, has placed within the heart of this king at Jericho this fear, this understanding of who God is. And this was a no, no weak city. Jericho was a strong, fortified city with walls that were 20, 30, some suggest even 40 feet high. It was a strong, fortified city. But that reality didn't stop the fear that God had put in their hearts. It didn't overcome the fear that God had placed within the hearts of those who were within these uh, supposedly safe walls, within this supposedly safe city of Jericho. And in verse 2, back in chapter, chapter 6 of Joshua, uh, we read that these were valiant warriors. So these weren't a bunch of weaklings who were scared, who didn't know how to fight, who were sitting out uh, vulnerable in the plains. No, they were fortified within these huge walls and they were valiant warriors, but they were trembling in fear because God had placed that fear within them, preparing for this battle that is going to come up here in Joshua 6. Not only did God give that, that fear to those who were within Jericho and, and place that fear and that trembling, that, um, that understanding of the power that was behind Israel and Israel's God, within their hearts, but he also gave the same assurance to Israel that they were going to be able to go in. They were going to be able to overtake these people within Jericho. Look with me at verse 2. It says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. Remember, this is before they've even set out to start marching around those walls, right? They haven't even gone out yet. And God has told Joshua, I've already given you this, this victory. I've already given you this land. Uh, it's already 
said and done, right? It's as good as done. And we know that when God says something, he does it. He is faithful to his word. He's not going to go back behind his, his word, but he has said already that he has given Jericho into their hands. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So when God says something, it's going to happen. When he declares something, it's going to take place. Let's listen again to Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. It says, remember this and be assured. So don't forget, right? Twice. Remember, be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my own purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. God is not a God who is one to speak flippantly. He's not a God to be trifled with. If he says something, it's going to happen. If he says something, it will come to pass. It will be done. And just as God has sent fear into the hearts of those who are within these walls of Jericho, he has also sent encouragement to those who are going to go in and, and overtake this city of Jericho. God has said that they will do it, and uh, that's what he's going to do. See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and valiant warriors. Let's keep reading in verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then, on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. Now, this is not the most conventional way to take over a city, right? It's quite unconventional, in fact, to walk around the city and then the walls are just going to tumble down by themselves without you uh, taking any siege towers or, or ramparts, any battering rams or cannons or catapults to the city. It's just going to fall by the hand of God, by the power of God. Uh, this absolutely defies logic, right? This is not a, a battle plan that is really actionable in any other sense apart from God. You don't just walk around something and expect it to fall unless you have the power of God behind you. And this is uh, not the first time that God has chosen to uh, act in, in this sort of way. This is something that is actually quite common to God. God has made a habit of using underdogs to bring glory to himself, to uh, accentuate the, the fact that he is at work, that he is the one who is behind the scenes. 
Uh, we see this later with Jonathan and his armor bearer. Remember when they go up in First uh, Samuel 14, I think, and they overtake 20 men together, just the two of them. Or in the book of Judges, how God uses Gideon and his army of 32,000 men, and he dwindles them down to a mere 300 for the sole purpose of uh, showing his glory, putting his glory on display so that it wouldn't be misunderstood that Joshua or that Gideon and, and Israel and all their great human might and power have come in and overtaken the, the Midianites. Uh, but he wanted to, again, accentuate the fact that he is the one who is in charge. He's the one who is calling the shots, who is pulling the strings. He is the one who speaks to one of his prophets through the mouth of a donkey so that he can receive the glory and the honor for himself. I have a, a quote here from Dale Ralph Davis uh, talking about this unconventional uh, way that God likes to work. He says, It is more important to recognize God's position than to know God's plan. We can easily become more interested in special guidance than in a right relationship with the guide. Sometimes it seems God insists on bypassing his people's activity in order to enhance his own glory among his people. If Israel only marched and shouts, there will be no doubt about who batters Jericho to the ground. God is in the business of bringing honor and glory to himself. That is, that's what he's all about. In Isaiah 48, 11, he says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory, I'm, I'm not going to share it with anybody else. I will share it with no one. God is all about bringing honor and glory to himself, and he is right and justified in doing so. We see, once again here in verse 5, that he's going to, with this mere unconventional means of walking around the city, and blowing some trumpets and, and shouting, just yelling at the walls. Um, it says very uh, assertively at the end of verse 5 that the wall of the city will fall down. Not only is it going to fall down, it's going to fall down flat. And the people will go up, every man, and they're going to go up straight ahead. They're not going to have to uh, bounce or maneuver around different people. They're not going to have to be worried about any... Uh, military action that's going to come up against them. They're going to go up straight ahead without having to avoid enemy armies because the Lord is going to go before them and the walls will fall down. They will fall down flat. Look with me at Numbers twenty-three nineteen. Great memory verse you should consider committing to memory. It says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? So again, God has not only placed within the hearts of Jericho this understanding that Israel, they, they mean business. They have this powerful God behind them. He has reassured the Israelites themselves that they're going to go in. They're going to take over Jericho. The walls will fall down. They will fall down flat. They're going to go in straight ahead. And Israel, understanding the nature and the character of their God, that God doesn't lie, that when he says something, he will do it, they no doubt were encouraged and uh, had this, this understanding that they were going to go in. It was going to be a massive encouragement. This was a realization for the people of Israel. Israel wasn't fighting for victory. 
but they were fighting from victory, a victory that was already sealed, already guaranteed by their God. This was not only a reality for the Israelites, but it was a realization for them that God had given this land into uh, their hands. And this is the exact same mindset that you and I are to have as, as Christians, walking in this Christian life, seeking to be sanctified by the, the power of the Holy Spirit, that Christ would come in us and he would change us, he would make us more and more like himself. We should realize that this is a, a battle that we are fighting not for victory, but we are fighting from victory. That God who is outside of time has created good works that he has predestined us for, right? In Ephesians 2.10, he has created these good works. He has predestined us to these good works. And earlier in Ephesians, not only has he predestined us uh, to these good works, but he has predestined us ourselves as adoption, or to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of his glory. He has taken and predestined us to do these good things, to walk in sanctification, to live a new and holy life set apart to him for his glory. And we know from Romans 8.30 that those whom he has predestined, he has called. Those whom he has called, he has justified. Those whom he has justified, he has glorified. That if you are a Christian in Christ, you have already been glorified. It is as good as done. God has said it, and it will happen. It has taken place. We are fighting not for victory, but we are fighting from a position of victory. Christ has already overcome the world, and he has left us to it. Uh, it is done. It is finished. Uh, it is complete. We are fighting from a position of victory. And that was the reality that God was communicating to Israel to bless them and to encourage them with that they had this victory before them already. Well, let's go on. Let's look at the, the battle of Jericho. We'll read about the battle of Jericho starting in verse 6. And we'll see uh, the first day of them walking around this city in verses 6 through 11. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram horn, ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And it was so. And when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed from your mouth, until the day that I tell you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he, went, so he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once, then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now, whenever we approach the Bible, seeking to understand the Bible, a good Bible study method for us to employ is to look for uh, words that are often repeated. That's a good way for us to understand the, the author's intent and what he sees as important, what he sees as significant if he is using repetition over and over and over again. That's a sign to the reader that 
Maybe the, the author wants us to, to get this. It means something special. Uh, one of the, the, my favorite passages to highlight this is in Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. And there, Paul is dealing with uh, a false gospel, and he wants to uh, really highlight the fact that this is not the truth of the gospel. And so he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have already preached, let him be eternally condemned. And then right after that he says, As I have already said, so now I say again, if anybody receives a gospel other than what you have already received, he is to be eternally condemned. So Paul means business. He wants to emphasize that the gospel is true, right? The gospel does not change. The gospel does not change. He's trying to emphasize this with repetition. And so knowing this, um, that the, the biblical authors will often try to highlight a, a point by repeating it, many have come to Joshua 6 and uh, they see the author using several times in this passage this number 7, right? In this one chapter, we see this number 7 14 times in a mere 27 verses, and they'll conclude, well, this must be really important. This must be a significant number. So is this number seven important? Well, yeah, of course it is. Uh, all scripture is God-breathed, right? It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Everything that we have is put there for a reason. So what is the significance of seven being found over and over and over again, uh, as opposed to the number three or five or eight? I don't know. We, we don't know. We can't know because the author doesn't tell us this is why I'm using this number seven over and over and over again. Uh, many will say that this number is the number of completion or the number of perfection, but the problem with that is that the text doesn't say that. The text doesn't say that this was a, a perfect battle or a complete battle or they wanted to completely take the city um, and that was symbolized through this number seven. Uh, in fact, I think we need to, to be careful, and I just want to warn you against this type of numerology or this hidden meaning approach to Scripture that many will often take, and they'll try to look within, like between the lines of the text of Scripture and say, oh, what does God really want us to understand here? Why does he use this number? We don't know, and we can't know. God has spoken to us plainly, and we need to take the things that God has plainly said to us and employ those rather than looking for secret hidden meanings. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 that we're not to go beyond what is written. And that's a, a really important tool to our, our method of approaching the Bible that we need to uh, take and, and balance that with this other tool of, of repetition. Yes, God speaks to us um, and emphasizes things through repetition, but if he doesn't clearly tell us what he's saying, like he did in Galatians 1, 8, and 9, we shouldn't be looking for any secret meaning. So the significance that we should take from the repetition of number seven in this chapter is that God has given specific instructions to his people and that Joshua and Israel, they were obedient and precise to listen to God and what he has said. He told them, send out seven priests, they sent out seven priests. He said, blow seven ram's horns, and they did just that. Walk around seven times, and that's what they did. And I think that's where we need to stop. We need to stop where Scripture stops and realize, okay, well, they were obedient, and that must be the significance that we are to take from the specificity that we see in this text. So that's day one. Uh, let's look at day two in verses 12 through 14. It says, Now Joshua rose early in the morning, 
and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests, carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came up after the ark of the Lord, while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. Now if we're paying attention, there's really nothing different the second day than what there was the first day. It's uh, just the same, no deviation, same old routine as day one. And in fact, it says that they did this for six days. So day one, day two, three, four, five, six, all the same. They went out and did the exact same thing. Um, nothing fancy, nothing new. And once again, I think that we can relate. You and I can relate. If not right now, then at least at some points in our lives, we've lived through periods of monotony, that life is just monotonous sometimes, that uh, it's just the, the same thing, different day, right? Second verse, same as a verse. First, I uh, get up and uh, go to work, come home, go to bed, get up, go to work, come home, go to bed, and just do it over and over and over again. It can seem pointless or meaningless. I think, uh, at least in my own life, this has been a reality. Today is, <laughs> Joseph's laughing at me because I have a monotonous life. <sighs> you do too, Joseph. <laughs> You'll get there someday. Um, today is Dean's birthday. So, happy birthday, Dean. He's not here, but... Um, I was talking with Dean a, a few days ago, and I was just joking around with him and saying, well, you're, you're going to be 38. You're about due for a midlife crisis. Um, and while I was joking, it's, it's crazy to me that um, this phenomenon is so pervasive in our society that we've given it a name, a midlife crisis, that uh, it happens to, to so many people so often that... Um, we, we realize the monotony of life and we get to this point in life where we realize the, not only the monotony of life but the brevity of life that um, so many people just get tired of doing the same old thing and waking up, going to work, coming home, going to sleep. Um, and so we seek to get ourselves out of that system and um, results in a quote-unquote midlife crisis for a lot of us. Um, but really this while it can be a, a real struggle for, for many, ultimately it's the failure to acknowledge that our identity is in Christ, that we are defined by Him as Christians, not by what we do, that He is the one who has ordered our days and that He has called us to be faithful to Him, not in the, the big, grandiose things, which is what we're often looking for, but in the day-to-day, -day, we are to be faithful to God. Uh, we are not to grow weary in well-doing. And this includes going to work, making dinner, loving your spouse, uh, feeding the kids, paying the bills, reading your Bible, uh, loving your neighbor, mowing the lawn, just these everyday, boring, monotonous things that God has called us to do. These are good things. And while they're not uh, fun and beautiful and, and grandiose, it is what God has called us to do. And we are to be faithful in the little things. And he who is faithful in little is faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in little is unrighteous in much. And we see uh, that for these six days, Israel was faithful to go around, to walk around, uh, each man doing his part. In verse 13, seven priests, they were the ones who were carrying the 
the trumpets of ram's horns. They were walking uh, before the ark of the Lord. Somebody was carrying the ark of the Lord. Somebody was blowing trumpets. The the men who went before them and the rear guard who came up behind the ark, uh, each man was monotonously working as God had called him to work in the the season and the way that God had called him to work. And we see uh, that this is rewarded later on. Let's look at verses 15 through, uh, let's go 15 through 19. It says, then on the seventh day, this is the big day they've all been waiting for. The seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And it's at this point that we expect to see them shouting and taking the city, but instead we see an an interruption of sorts here in verse 17. It says, the city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belong to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And we're going to learn about this ban a lot more next week as we look at chapter 7. Uh, but we can see that God wants them to stay focused on the mission that they have at hand. Right now, they have been called to go in to take Jericho. Uh, and God, being God, knew their hearts, knew their propensity towards selfish distraction to see this silver and gold. And he knew that we are, we're simple beings and we see something shiny and we say, oh, I, I want that, right? Um, and he said, no, that's, that's not for you. Don't take that. That is under the ban. Um, God has told them to stay away from these things and this somewhat awkward interruption. Again, I, I think jumping from uh, verse 16 right to verse 20, it would make sense that he says, go in when I say shout and shout. And that's how verse 20 starts. It says, then the people shouted. But he interrupts us here to talk about this ban. I think this awkward interruption suggests that Joshua's emphasis is upon obedience to God and to what he has said over and against victory itself. They've already been promised his victory. They've been told that they are going to go in and take this city. But he pauses here to highlight the, the importance of obedience to what God has commanded. We do see in verse 20 that um, God does reward them with this city. It says in verse 20, shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And when people heard the shout of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Now, up until this point, Israel was faithful to to follow Joshua, to fight Og and and Sihon, to cross over the Jordan, uh, to walk monotonously around this city, day one, two, three, four, five, six. They were faithful uh, where their fathers had failed to be faithful. But this generation, they they knew the promise that God had uh, given to them, and 
they were faithful to go after the city, to go into the city as God had directed them. And God now was rewarding them with a major city in the land that he had promised to their father some 600 years before. God had made this promise to Abraham to give them this land, and this promise is finally coming to fruition as they're being given this reward for their faithfulness to be obedient to God, to go in and to take this land. God has delivered on his promise, and uh, remember that Caleb and Joshua, they came back with a report from this land, and they said, it is a, it's a good land, it's a great land. So God has not only rewarded them for their obedience, but he has rewarded them with a, a good reward, with a great reward for their obedience. Not only did God do this, he delivered this great land to his people in miraculous fashion. Again, in a way that uh, brings honor and glory to himself in a way that is different and unique. Again, miraculous. Uh, when, when we first moved to, to Sanic, when we first bought our house four years ago, uh, I remember often looking at that house, waking up and, and realizing, oh, God has given us this house and he's done so in a, a cool way that we didn't expect. Um, and I was enamored with that fact. Um, when I first married my wife, I was enamored with the fact I get to hold her hand. That's, that's cool, right? I get to kiss her. Um, and, and that was an enamoring reality. Or looking out at our, our mountains in Utah, I didn't realize the, the beauty of our mountains until I went away to Wyoming or Nebraska, right? And they don't have that out there. Um, but um, we, we kind of grow complacent with these things. I don't look at my house in the same way that I used to. And to my shame, I don't kiss my wife with the same joy that I once did. I don't look at the mountains with the same uh, sense of excitement as I once did when I first came home from flat, boring Wyoming. Um, I, I've grown complacent, and I think we have a tendency to grow complacent and to get used to things. And we can do this same thing with the Bible. And I have to confess, I've kind of done that with Joshua chapter 6. Um, this is not just some cool Sunday school story. This is a miraculous historical account that God actually dropped the walls of this city by himself, right? With nothing to do with, with Israel, and they're walking around and yelling at these walls. That's not how walls fall down. But God miraculously intervened, and we should stand in utter amazement and awe at who our God is and what he has done in this amazing account that uh, we have to understand is miraculous. Uh, this account is so amazing that some will try to write it off as uh, in, in naturalistic ways and say, oh, well, this was just an earthquake. Or there, there was, had to be poor construction architecture in the building of the walls, and, and they just happened to fall down as Israel was walking around the, the city. That's utter foolishness. First of all, to even take half of the biblical account and say, okay, well, we're, gonna, we're going to believe this, and we're going to try to reconcile this with our understanding of who God is. God is not a God who needs to be reconciled with our understanding. God is a God who does what he wants and how he wants. And we need to realize that and again, stand in awe and amazement of who God is. God is a God who cares about details. And we'll see that in this next verse. That, uh, these Israelites, they were obedient to God in the details. Verse 21 could be a, a difficult verse for many. 
and says that they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. And they were obedient in this, in the details. Remember that God is a God who cares about details. Think back to uh, how it's Joshua who's leading them in this battle, in this uh, conquest, because Moses had struck the rock rather than speaking to the rock. That's why Moses isn't here leading them, because God cares about obedience to details. And these guys were obedient even in these difficult details. Let's go back and look at uh, God's initial command, his initial instruction for going in and taking the land in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And he says in Deuteronomy 20, 16 and 17, Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you, as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. That's, that's a rough reality, right? And we are apt to question God at this point. And I get it. I'm, I'm human too. I'm right there with you. It doesn't hit our ears right to say, well, not only the men are to be destroyed, but the men and the women and the young. That means the babies, the little kids and the old. That means the people who need a, a walker to get around. All that breeze is to be destroyed. And at this point, I think we need to remind ourselves that God is God and we are not, right? God knows what he is doing. He doesn't need us to stand in judgment over him and question what he is doing or why he is doing it. Earlier, we read from Isaiah 55. I want to go back and read from there again a couple verses that came before what we read in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. We should pause and realize that. God's thoughts are far superior than ours. They are different and distinct and holy from ours. Nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. If we don't understand that reality, we need to stop and pause. If we take issue with God at, at any point, we need to realize that the problem is with us and not with God. Uh, we should be drawn nearly immediately. Our mind should be drawn to Romans 9, uh, which says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Absolutely not. May it never be. God forbid. There is no injustice with God. God is good and he is just in everything that he does. And we are in no position to, to talk back to God. It says in that same chapter, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the thing that is formed say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? God doesn't owe an answer to anybody. He alone is God. He sits in the heavens. He does as he wishes. He doesn't have to provide an answer for why he does what he does. And yet, in this instance, he does. God takes uh, the, the extra time, the extra step to explain why it is that he has commanded this command back in Deuteronomy 20. If we just keep reading in Deuteronomy 20, verse 18, he says, Go in and, and utterly destroy everybody so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done to their gods so that you would sin against the Lord your God. 
he is commanding them to do this for their own good so that they would be set apart, so that they wouldn't be drawn after other gods and other idols, so that they would rightly give honor and glory to God and to God alone. They wouldn't be tempted and tested with the idolatrous ways of these other people. Again, we need to remind ourselves of what David Howard said, that um, God is working in this militaristic style for two reasons. One, because God is giving Israel its inheritance, the land that had long been promised to it. And secondly, he is punishing the local inhabitants of the land for their wickedness. God is doing these things for a purpose, for a reason, to bring honor and glory to himself. And in this, we should realize for ourselves that God's judgment is, is real. God's judgment is perfectly just, and God's judgment is coming to, to many in the future. Just as these people found themselves under God's judgment, as they found themselves uh, being crumbled and, and dying beneath the rocks and, and walls of the city, judgment is coming to us in a, a very real and very just way. And rather than questioning why it is that God would punish some, we ought to ask why it is that God would show grace and mercy to any. And as we continue on in our, our passage, we see in verses 22 and 27, that's exactly what God does for uh, Rahab, that he shows her undeserved grace, undeserved love. Let's read in verse 22. Joshua said to the two men, this is after going in and, and utterly destroying the city and taking the city of Jericho. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all that she has out of there, as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in, and they brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. And they brought out all of her relatives and placed them outside of the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers from whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Remember that Rahab here, we're even reminded here, go into the, the harlot's house. Rahab is a female, pagan, Gentile prostitute. Um, she was the most unlikely candidate for salvation. She was the most culturally unworthy person that you could come up with. And yet, she was spared from this utter destruction that God brought upon this city of Jericho. She had faith in Yahweh, in the one true God of Israel. And she found herself being counted among the Israelites. She was first outside of the camp. She was welcomed into the camp. And not only that, in fact, she is uh, blessed to be in the, the lineage of Christ. Our Lord himself would later enter this world through the lineage of a Gentile prostitute. She was adopted from a foreigner into the family of God, brought into the fold and shown grace and love because of her faith in the one true God of Yahweh, of, of Israel, who is Yahweh. And she should be a, a testament to, to all of us that 
Uh, there is nobody who is outside of the reach of God. By nature, as Jeremy read earlier from uh, Ephesians 1 and 2, we are children of wrath. By nature, we are enemies of God. We are deserving of utter death and destruction, just like those who are within the walls of Jericho. But by the, the grace and the love of Christ, we can find salvation through him. Let's look at um, verse 26 real briefly. Verse 26, we see some, some follow-up with the, the city of Jericho. Joshua 6.26 says, Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. And just real quick, I want to uh, jump over to First Kings. We'll see the fulfillment of this. Some man was foolish enough to take on this conquest. In First Kings 16.34, we read about Hael during the, the ninth century, some 500 years later, 500 years down the road. And it says in First Kings 16.34 that in his days, Hael the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundation with the loss of Abraham, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. And in this, we're reminded just once again that God is faithful to keep his promises. He promised that Israel would enter the land, they would take the land. He made a promise here that if anybody else built on these grounds, that um, they would lose two of their sons, and this happened to this man, Hiel. God is faithful. And lastly, in verse 27, we read, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all of the land. So once again, we see that God is establishing Joshua's role amongst the Israelites, not only amongst the Israelites, but in all the lands that he will soon go in and invade and conquer God is with Joshua and using him to lead his people into his land, the land that he had promised to Abraham, again, some 600 years before. So throughout this whole chapter, we see that God isn't a God who is far off, a God who has forgotten about his creation, but God is a God who is intimately involved in every aspect of what is going on here, every aspect of life, that he was involved in preparing the soil for Israel to go in and to take over Jericho. That he, again in chapter 15, we saw that he is the commander of the Lord's army. He was actually leading them into this battle. All that Israel did was walk around. God was the one who delivered this victory to his people. And God displayed his faithfulness to deliver the land, to protect Rahab, to lead his people by raising up a, a worldly leader in Joshua. He was even faithful to, uh, to fulfill the, the curse that he promised in verse 26. God is a faithful God, and we should see that everywhere we look, that he is intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. And so, Christian, today, you and I, we should learn from the obedience of Israel, that we too ought to be obedient. We ought to follow after God both in the, the boring and the mundane when we're just walking around doing things that aren't exciting, they aren't grandiose, and uh, they don't really get our, our blood pumping and blood flowing. We should still be obedient to God then, as well as the difficult and the scary and the, the big things, the, 
day seven of walking around the city and blowing the trumpets and shouting and seeing the, the walls fall. We need to be obedient and faithful to God in every situation, realizing that we are not our own, but we belong to God. We are His sheep. We are the sheep of His pasture. And as such, we need to live for God wherever we are, knowing that He is the one who has put us there. Let's pray. God, we do thank You for Your faithfulness. And thank you that you are a God who is above all. You are a God who doesn't take counsel from anybody else, but you are sovereign. You alone are sovereign. If you say something, it will come to pass. God, we thank you for the, the truth we have of your word, for the promises that we have in your word, knowing that in this world we will face trouble, but we can take heart because you, God, have overcome this world. God, help us to live in the, the light of that reality that we know the God who is outside of time. He is from everlasting to everlasting, and you have directed our steps. You have directed our paths. You are in control of everything. We thank you for the, the peace and the security that that brings, for the, the fact that there is nothing that takes place apart from your understanding. There's not a sparrow that falls to the ground without you knowing about it. You know the, the number of hairs on our head and you are in control of absolutely everything. God, we pray that you would give us peace and comfort from that. And if necessary, that you would, uh, you would touch our hearts with a, a glimpse of fear, that we would understand your, your power and we would submit to that, that we would realize that you are God and we are not. We pray this in your name. Amen.